Before we dive into this episode of HRD Masterclass, I'd like to take 30 seconds to share the exciting news that we're now seeking sponsors for Season 5 to release in 2024. This is a wonderful opportunity to support the podcast series and also share your message with 3,500 HRD listeners around the world. Sponsorship options cost just $750 and $600 per episode, and for full details, contact D-A-R-R-E-N at allbypodcast.com. Right, let's start the episode. For me, HR typically is more of an instrument of fear, pain, or ridicule in, in popular culture. It's not something that is appreciated. So how can we find these good examples of HR in popular culture that we can celebrate? Welcome to the Human Resource Development Masterclass, the podcast series from the Academy of Human Resource Development, the organization that leads HRD through research. I'm your host, Darren Short, and here in our fourth season, we've been exploring the relationship between HRD and trends in society and organizations, with the help of leading authors, researchers, and scholars. In this final episode of the season, our focus is the relationship between HRD and pop culture. And my guest scholars are Dr. Jamie L. Callahan of Durham University, Dr. Mark Gatto of Newcastle Business School in Northumbria University, and Taylor Cavallo of the University of Minnesota, all of whom join me for a conversation recorded in October of 2023. You can find out all about the questions explored in the episode the three guest scholars, and also the episode sponsors by visiting allbypodcast.com forward slash culture. Talking of sponsorship, Human Resource Development Masterclass is only made possible thanks to the wonderful support of our sponsors, who cover all of the costs associated with the series, and so enable us to release episodes free of charge to listeners like you. I encourage you to show your thanks by checking them out and letting them know just how much their sponsorship means to you. Today's episode is sponsored by the Board of the Academy of Human Resource Development, which encourages you to attend the 31st Annual Research Conference in the Americas, being held in Arlington, Virginia, from February the 21st to 24th, 2024. It's the ideal opportunity to meet leading scholars, practitioners, and rising stars, including many of the guests in this podcast series, as they report their cutting-edge research. The event is perfect for learning and networking, and AHRD is an inclusive organization that invites all of those who are interested in the field, no matter where they are on their scholarly journey. Mark your calendar for 2024 in Arlington, We look forward to seeing you there. For further details, visit the AHRD homepage at ahrd.org. Right, let's dive into the episode. So welcome to our final episode of season four, and it's on the topic of HRD and pop culture. So let's start by meeting today's three guest scholars. And first, I'd like to welcome Dr. Jamie L. Callahan, who is Professor of Organization and Ethics at Durham University. Jamie is the former editor of Human Resource Development Review and current co-editor of the International Journal of Management Reviews. Jamie has earned numerous research awards, including the inaugural Laura Biermer Excellence in Critical HRD Award, the AHRD 2020 Scholar of the Year Award, and the 2015 Outstanding Book of the Year Award. Jamie's research addresses issues of power and privilege in organized contexts, leading her to explore marginalized groups' experiences of leadership, learning, and organizational transformation. Her particular passion is championing gender equity. So welcome, Jamie. Thanks so much for inviting me, Darren. And my second guest for the episode is Dr. Mark Gatto, lecturer in critical organization studies at Newcastle Business School in Northumbria University. Mark's main research interest is the gender inequity experienced by working parents in paid employment. He explores the influence of patriarchal discourse on individuals in organizational contexts, particularly the motherhood penalty and the patriarchal dividend. 
Mark's PhD used dystopian fiction and critical discourse analysis as a transdisciplinary critical approach to gender research in organizations. He also uses fiction as a subversive means of writing differently. Welcome, Mark. It's an honor to be here, Dan, and I'm a real fan of the podcast, so looking forward to it. And my third guest for the episode is Taylor Cavallo, who is a PhD student in the Human Resource Development Program at the University of Minnesota. Taylor's research interests are focused on the intersection of work, labor, and gender, with a particular emphasis on the experiences of motherhood and work for millennial women, as well as the ways that work and labor are represented in and create meaning in our lives and society. Taylor's presented her work at AHRD conferences and recently published a co-authored piece on cultural narratives of work and motherhood in an interdisciplinary journal. She began her career in HR and talent development in advertising agencies in New York City. So welcome, Taylor. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. So over the next hour or so, we'll be talking about pop culture and implications for organizations and individuals and then moving towards implications for HRD. But before diving into those details, I thought it'd be a good place to start to hear from each of you about what that term pop culture means to you and and how pop culture has influenced your own writing and research and practice. So, so Jamie, would you be willing to get the ball rolling and talk us through what pop culture means to you and how it's influenced your work? I, I'm really glad that you you clarified it with the phrase what it means to you, because my initial answer is what is pop culture? It was it was going to be to kind of coin a phrase popular in HRD, it depends um, because it really depends on, on who you're talking to and how they define it. It can be anything from culture that is widely favored and, and enjoyed by lots of different people. It can be the culture that's left over after we've decided what high culture is. It can be mass culture that's produced for mass consumption. Um, it can be folk culture that's produced for the people or from the people. So there, there are lots of different ways of looking at popular culture, but I kind of simplify it down into those artifacts and, and experiences as a part of everyday life that we do consume and enjoy that are along the lines of fiction, nonfiction, movies, television, plays, music that are there for enjoyment, but also pedagogy. And for me, that's how I initially got connected to seeing popular culture as part of what I do as a researcher, as a teacher, as a scholar. Um, I was introduced to the idea that you could use popular culture in education by Professor Martha Rashid at George Washington University when she assigned us all a novel as part of one of our class readings. And I was like, what? We're reading a novel? Um, and and yet I began to see what, what, what she was trying to get us to do. I, I began to see there was kind of method in the madness that it was taking us outside of the regular things that we were reading that had an academic orientation. And it triggered us to think more integratively. It triggered us to think more critically. It gave us a kind of reading that we weren't otherwise having so we could enjoy it. And we could also see the way that popular culture mirrored the very kinds of things that we were talking about in class. And once I began to realize how powerful that was, and out of that came one of my first publications, actually, I guess edited a special issue of Advances in Developing Human Resources around using popular culture to teach leadership. And so we use movies, we use we use books, we use plays, television shows, um, and all of those different kinds of things are vehicles that we can teach the theories that we're talking about. So it gives it a real life connection. In my classes, you know, talking about how I actually use it, it influences my my classes through things like the free air and reading circle. So I've, I frequently do things like I use movies one of the things that I used to do was I used a clip out of Monty Python and the Holy Grail and the Trojan rabbit scene to teach strategy. The other thing that I often, often do with class is I get students to create their own popular culture. So they create their own plays. They create their own HRD kind of ideas about what could happen by acting things out. So they're 
lots of different ways that, that you can think about what popular culture is and how I've used popular culture in my research and in my teaching. That was that was a great introduction to the episode. You re, you really set us up wonderfully there, Jamie. So, so I'm wondering, Mark, how does that compare with how you view pop popular culture or pop culture and 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 the way you use it? Thanks. I mean, Jamie's great answer. I, I knew you'd come up with some gold there, so I'm happy to rip off of that. Um, I think I, I would add with the the popular culture piece. I, I just want to emphasise how important it is that it's popular and entertaining and that it reaches that mass audience and I think that's why I really connect with it as a, a tool and instrument for research and for teaching I think it's so valuable in that way because it can just resonate in a way that other forms of communication sometimes fall short I wanted to just highlight as well sport as being a very important popular culture artifact and in fact, in recent times, we've got the, the Women's World Cup final and the incident that occurred there. And that has sparked a huge conversation that has fed into organisation consciousness about sexual harassment. Other artefacts in recent times, we've got the Barbie movie, which is suddenly permeating around the world, talks about patriarchy. So really is a, a great way into a lot of these really heavy and important topics. For me, I am particularly, as Darren mentioned in the, at the start, I'm obsessed with dystopian fiction. I have been for a long, long time. I have a paper in HRDI, which is Parenthood Demands, which was inspired by The Children of Men, which is both a novel and also a film. And that used that kind of that subversive collective of the five demands of people trying to resist quite an oppressive society. And the reason why I love dystopian fiction is it's kind of speculative, but also provides us with a warning of what could become. In more recent times, I've written a book called Parents at Work, which is written as a kind of hybrid between academic and fiction. And so I've kind of tried to take that further in, in how I do my research and, and write my, my research as well. So I'm happy to pass over to Taylor for her thoughts at this stage. Cool. I'll say I also love dystopia. <laughs> um, I definitely consider myself to be first and foremost a lover of pop culture. So I think that's how I have come to this a little bit more in my work. The first real kind of academic paper I ever wrote was in a philosophy class about the movie The Nightmare Before Christmas and existentialism. So I, uh, in my work as a PhD student, think about popular narratives within culture um, related to work, motherhood, and feminism, as well as uh, popular culture artifacts as they relate to organizations and work. And I, I was also going to reference the Barbie movie. Um, you know, as of September 1st, the Barbie movie passed, I think, $600 million in the domestic box office with some really weighty topics and conversations around, as Mark mentioned, feminism, cultural narratives about women, patriarchy, uh, in a movie that was so consumed by so many different people, but at, you know, first glance or initially maybe considered somewhat silly. In this distinction between high culture and pop culture, one thing that I think is so fascinating is how the way that we kind of metabolize pop culture I think of uh, reality TV as a great example of this, you know, as a guilty pleasure. There's something almost you have to, you're embarrassed by it because as Mark said, it is popular. What does that mean? Do I not have highbrow taste? But, you know, there are many scholars who, um, you know, in media studies and things have extracted real interesting critical analysis around things like The Real Housewives, The Bachelor, The Real World was kind of the first example of that. So I think there is kind of tremendous depth present in these things if people, you know, choose to bring that that eye to it. And kind of in a more basic way to answer that question, I think pop culture is one of the many things that makes life beautiful. It's one of the many things that just makes life more colorful and exciting. And it's a very significant shared touch point that we have as a, as a society um, and as a culture together while we may, of course, interpret it differently given our identities and things like that. Um, there is something special about either watching a big game and talking about it with fans the next day or catching the latest episode of The Real Housewives and group texting your friends about it. I'm not a, not a sports fan per se, but I have a lot of sports fans in my life. And 
Um, I think it's very interesting to see in the ways in which, of course, there's such a, a, a connection to gender here, but um, the ways in which that sports are so legitimized and seen as important and serious, whereas things like reality TV, The Bachelor, The Real Housewives are ridiculed for being silly. It's interesting to kind of put on your scholarly hat for a minute and think about, well, why is the Super Bowl more important than the the season finale of The Bachelor? Why is it silly to gather with girlfriends or whoever and do that, but it's not silly to have a Super Bowl party? Yeah, I was going to say, I think it, it speaks to how our whole society is coded as a patriarchy, really. You've got prime ministers and presidents referring to big sports events, but they're not talking about Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. My wife, she won't mind me saying this, is a massive fan of the Kardashians. And I think as, as like a release, something joyful to watch. And that is, it's really interesting to me, and I'm planning to use it in my teaching, as an example of a matriarchy. And we don't really appreciate it as much, but these are incredibly successful women. And it's an incredibly popular show. Yeah, it has, I mean, there are elements to it that I'm not a big fan of, but I sit through it. <laughs> but, um, there are things that I think... That, this whole piece of like, why is sports so appreciated? It is this gender coding, and, uh, and it, there is something we should challenge in this idea of popular is popular, and which should be valued in in an equal way. I think so. I think there's a, there's a lot to unpick there in terms of how we look at popular culture and its way into thinking about organisations, how we work with people. There's there's a lot to to tease out and and to reevaluate. I think. We come by that idea of of sports as being legitimate and it ties back to that whole patriarchy thing. And what I I, I went and grabbed was um, a quote that I was required to memorize when I went through undergraduate was on the fields of friendly strife are sown the seeds that on other days and other fields will bear the fruits of victory, specifically um, with respect to military, with respect to war. It was a quote by um, General Douglas MacArthur. So that idea that, oh, this is training for real life is what sports gives us. Yeah, it really is fascinating. First of all, we've hit so many firsts. This is like this is episode 44 of the podcast series, um, and it's the first time Real Housewives has been mentioned at all. And it's already been mentioned multiple times. So I think I think we're we're breaking new ground here. So I wanted to transition us toward closer towards the HRD piece. And it feels like maybe a, a quarter step in that direction is to start thinking about pop culture and and organizations. Um, I think that moves us towards thinking about HRD as a whole, maybe organizations and work. And so Taylor, I was wondering, when you think about pop culture, how, how do you see it portraying organizations and work? As we all know, work is such a fundamental and relatable shared experience for people. So it's, I mean, no surprise, I think that the workplace setting would be kind of a fruitful and uh, generative place for pop culture artifacts. So just to kind of, you know, rattle off a few that I think are most notable just to get people thinking about organizations and work and just how popular um, this setting is in pop culture. You know, the 1999 movie Office Space, maybe one of the older ones I'll, I'll mention. More recently, there are TV shows like uh, Succession on HBO that has a huge following, Silicon Valley that parodies the tech industry. And then workplace comedies is considered to be its own subgenre of comedy, things like Parks and Rec, Superstore. And then when you venture into the reality TV genre, you even have things like the, the show Undercover Boss. And then there are scripted shows. So things like The Dropout about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, Super Pumped about the founding of Uber and looking at startup culture. And if you adopt a more expansive definition of work and workplace, um, you can even perhaps think of shows like The Sopranos that look at themes of leadership and hierarchy and power in a completely different context. I'll, I'll briefly kind of touch on three examples that I think are really powerful um, in kind of painting a picture to answer this question. So if we look at TV, for example, so scripted TV, I think Mad Men, The Office, and Severance, each of them offers either an eerie or a serious or comic perspective on the workplace. So starting with Mad Men, the show offers a look back at the advertising industry during the 60s and 70s. Certain things about work life depicted there may be quite shocking to modern viewers. 
I don't remember necessarily an HR person at Sterling Cooper, but there are other aspects that may be more relatable for modern viewers like office politics, managing client relationships. The show also offers some interesting looks at the realities of work and work life during that time. And I'll use the journey of um, Peggy Olson as an example of that. So she started off as what was then called a secretary and really rises through the organization to become a star copywriter throughout the show, which can tell us things about, uh, you know, the gendered nature of work during that time period. Uh, Moving forward in time, The Office is a comedy that everybody seems to love. One really relatable piece of that show, I think, is the pervasive thread throughout the series of the 2008 recession and the business anxieties that it caused. So Dunder Mifflin is constantly facing bankruptcy, potential branch closures, branch mergers, layoffs. And a core theme of the show is the idea of a smaller business competing with business uh, competitors that are much bigger than them, like Staples or uh, other kind of big box office supply stores. And then, you know, going off of this idea of anxieties, I think the newer uh, show that I referenced, uh, Severance, which is a dystopian psychological thriller set in the kind of white collar workplace is a really, really interesting look at some modern questions and modern themes around the shifting understandings of office life and work, the office setting and the work that's done there is maybe, you know, somewhat meaningless sometimes. This anxiety around workplace surveillance, I think, is definitely present in that show. And then this idea that corporate culture or the corporation itself becomes like doctrine and religion. It's all encompassing, which I think we can um, look at some modern examples of really big organizations that are stepping out of what they were initially set out to do and becoming much bigger than they once were. So I think these three examples show us just how different ideas about work and organizations can be depending on the artifact, depending on the time it's made, depending the time it's depicting, but all can be very interesting and, you know, great sources of analysis and kind of critical commentary. That was brilliant, Taylor. I absolutely love that answer. I think one of the things that pop culture does really well is satire, the sense of satirizing the ridiculousness sometimes of organizational life that we, we try and present as professionals, but a lot of the time it is actually ridiculous and therefore we should satirize it and think differently and make make jokes of it because it often is silly. So I think that's where popular culture really has power. And I wanted to just build on your love of severance because I've also really enjoyed watching severance in recent times. And for me, the, the kind of notion of the ideal worker coming out really strongly and this connects with my interest in work and life and paid and unpaid work and what is permissible what is okay to discuss in the workplace what is not and that connects to what hrd can do in terms of organizational culture and the cultures that we create together does it have to be top down or can it be more grassroots and I I particularly wanted to just build on that idea of unpaid work as well. So in the UK, there's a show called Motherland, which really thinks about the the unpaid work of parenthood um, and in in its intersection with organisations such as schools. You also have Modern Family in the US that does sort of similar stuff, thinking about how families organise as a collective. Um, And this family life influences the world of work. And it has a huge impact on what people can and can't do at different times of day. And just generally shows like this can, in a sort of backdoor way, raise awareness popular in popular culture of what is really going on. People aren't just, in, like in severance, switching modes. When, when I've dropped off my child in the morning and if, if, if they've cried at the drop off, that's still going on in my head when I enter the workplace. You know, I might try to switch modes, but it doesn't always come out that way. Some other things I wanted to just briefly add to, I learned a lot about power through Game of Thrones and particularly the characters Varys and Littlefinger and the way that they use their power, not their physical power, but their intellectual power um, and to to build their own empires. Um, And that was something that I think you're thinking about how you can maneuver in a workplace they were really interesting characters to observe quite dangerous characters as well but so it's something to think about what can you identify the little finger in the workplace that perhaps is a threat and someone that you should be wary of 
Um, I, I always like to see a little bit of Veris in myself, but there's some interesting things about him that I think are quite cool. But um, yeah, there's certainly these characters that you see, they're, they're doing things that actually you can identify in your own working experiences. I just wanted to finish because I know Jamie will like this, but utopias, we have to think about Star Trek and we have to think about the hierarchical way that things are ordered in Star Trek as, as seen as a utopia, but it is also based on a militaristic way of organizing. And there's Gene Roddenberry's rule of no conflict for the bridge. So we see that kind of harmony, but is it is it harmony or is it repressed? Okay, I'm like really excited now because I'm seeing connections to everything that you're saying and, and it stimulates some other thoughts for me. One of them clearly is the idea of, of the timelessness of popular culture. And there, Mark's reference to Star Trek was one of those that, yes, it's time. It's it's timely for me as I watched in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and and so forth. But then people who are just picking up now, the franchise is continued, um, and and so there is a continuation because a lot of times when we talk about popular culture, you know, they they tell uh, professors my age don't make a popular culture reference in class because you're just going to date yourself, um, because the cultural anchors that I have are things like, you know, when I was thinking of, of different things that influenced me, um, I thought of MASH, for example, because I watched the entire series from beginning to end um, during my lifetime. And so there are those kinds of, of idiosyncratic connections to individual identities and what they have access to. And that access is another piece of it that connected to both what both of what you said with respect to severance. So severance is on Apple TV. So it depends on where you have access. I don't have Apple TV. It's not a it's not a platform that I pay for. So I haven't seen it. I pay for other platforms. So what platforms do you pay for? And therefore, which platforms, which popular culture do you have access to? The other piece of it that I also was thinking of was Mark, you brought up Star Trek, which is kind of along the lines of of the way that I've typically used popular culture. Yeah, a lot of times I use like I love the movie Equity to talk about the way women are treated in, in organizations. I love the movie The Company Men, one of the first movies that I saw that I was like, I really see a connection to me as an HR professional and the damage that we can do to individuals as HR professionals. So these movies that on the surface don't really have a connection to what in what is a classical organization those are the ones that i tend to bring in a little bit more often because they're still about organizing in some form or fashion or the kinds of things that happen in organizations that we need to pay attention to like the way mark talked about power in game of thrones or the way you talked earlier taylor about re the real housewives so they they do show us the kinds of human experiences that we experience, whether we're in an organization, whether we're at work, whether we're at home, because those distinctions blur. We don't drop our personal selves off when we step into the workplace, nor do we leave our work behind when we step home. It's there. We're still thinking about it. So sometimes to try to stimulate that integrative connective kinds of thinking i like to pull in those those popular culture artifacts that you go is that about an organization there's so many places we could take this conversation i'm going to have to rule all of them out bar one so we simply don't have time but there's so much we could talk about for example on pop culture by access pop culture by generation pop culture by location Taylor mentioned The Office, and it's really interesting that when Taylor mentions The Office, my mind goes to Ricky Gervais um, and the British office. And for most people listening in the United States, their mind goes, of course, to Steve Carell um, and to Rain Wilson. And one of the characters in the American office was Toby, and Toby was the HR person. And I think for many people who entered the workplace, probably for maybe a decade or two, they entered the workplace and their mental picture of HR was probably Toby. 
Um, so, um, so I'd love to kind of use that as a way of taking us into the into exploring how pop culture does portray HR and kind of what that means. So, Mark, are you, are you willing to share your thoughts as to how pop culture portrays HR? Thanks, Darren. Yeah, I mean, I have to say I haven't seen the American The Office, so I'm not as familiar with Toby. But my general perception of HR is that the more pertinent question would be, why is it not portrayed very much in popular culture? And what is happening here? Why is it not identified? Why are these characters not present in our films and our TV as prominently as perhaps they could be? I mean, I, I think oftentimes it's subsumed perhaps within a manager identity. I think of the show Severance, for example, it's some of the HR functions seem to be connected to a manager role. Um, when I think of other shows where HR is perhaps part of an episode, um, there's a, there was a, a series called Maternal in the UK, which was about doctors returning to work. And really it was about satirizing the training and development and the return to work conversations that HR deliver. It was, it was not, it was uh, almost HR as a, as a figure of ridicule not something that was something to be respected. Um, you also have, there's a novel by Max Barry called Company, which has a kind of reveal at the, I don't want to ruin the novel for people, but HR have quite a nefarious and frightening role within that, the, the sense of HR being the other or them. They're, they're this unnamed presence within an organization. And that again can be quite a, a concerning thing for us as, HRD uh, scholars, people who actually care about this, you know, why is it that we're being perceived this way? What is it that has happened over the years? I suppose one example I come to of, in recent times from film is the film Up in the Air um, and uh, the character that George Clooney plays, who travels around the world with uh, his whole life in a suitcase. He even talks about that in the film as like it's something he's everything should be packed away in a suitcase, really stripped back person. but travels around and, and fires people. That's his job. Like they, he, he does it in a very effective way, or at least it's, it, it's perceived to be effective at the start. Yeah, what is effective? Uh, but yes, yeah, certainly it, um, that is an example that I think perhaps is doing great damage to this perception of HR. There, there, isn't the, there aren't these wonderful examples of really nurturing uh, uh, facilitators of learning in an organization that I would, I would love to see. So for me, HR typically is more of an instrument of fear and pain or ridicule in, in popular culture. It's not something that is appreciated. Um, and really, that's why I'd love this conversation to start to move towards like, how can we find these good examples of HR in popular culture that, um, that we can celebrate? Mark, just to kind of chime in there on severance, I, I was thinking the same, just coming at that show from where obviously where my interests are looking at Mr. Milchek, I think would be the closest to an HR character. And in that character, I think we get kind of with that character. And then the Toby type of character from the office, I think you either get this idea of kind of a surveilling punitive, harsh um, archetype or the annoying nosy, very by the book rule follower type too, which again, not that rule following is bad, I guess, but there is this um, lack of what I think HRD scholars would hope to see in many depictions of pop culture in HR when they're even there. Cause I agree there. And typically I would argue, I guess they're portraying more HRM and, you know, the traditional HR function as opposed to, thinking of things that I, I knew I couldn't think of any kind of more HRD specific per se, but yeah, it's interesting that there is that lack of representation for kind of what as a discipline, I think we would hope to see in, in meaningful pieces of pop culture. One of the movies that immediately comes to mind for me is the company men. And there is an explicit HR, but HR as an overarching HR, more HRM position and one of the things that I like about that particular movie is that it shows all of the stereotypical horrific things that, that HR people do to people within the organization, which is completely contradictory 
to the roots of what HRD and HR as a profession in general have been about. And and I'll do a little bit of a plug here for a book that I have coming out with Laura Birma, uh, Carol Elliott, Josh Collins, and Tamika Greer, where we talk a little bit about the roots of HR being connected to um, people as human beings. And, and so frequently what we depict as HR in organizations um, in popular culture is that negative side, as both of you have said. In the company men, though, one of the things that that the HR um, director does is it actually articulates when she realizes the harm that she's creating for people and questioning what her real role as an HR professional should be. And that gets us to the classic critical HRD or critical question of in whose interest does this serve? So when I engage in these activities, in whose interest is it serving? And a lot of times I use that question to ask students to um, assess what they're doing or what they're looking at in an HR related popular culture um, artifact. In whose interest does that action that you're observing occur? And back to Mark's comment about, you know, the kind of the chicken or the egg question, does popular culture influence what's actually happening, practice, or does practice influence popular culture? And it's a little bit of both and, and that's where I think the Barbie movie starts to come in, um, because it's changing the way that we think about what's influencing what. I wonder if that takes us to a place then of exploring how how popular culture does influence employees in the workplace as in i i'm conscious like the number of times i've found myself like facilitating an hrd event um and and i'm conscious that the people in front of me when they walk in particularly if they're new hires and they're in onboarding and particularly if this is their first role in the workplace they're sitting there and their mental picture of what a workplace is like and what a what a what a manager or supervisor does um, or what hr might do or what hrd might do is probably influenced greatly by what they've seen in television seen in films read in books um and so, so I'm interested in your thoughts as to kind of how how that influence plays out. Like, so how how does how are employees impacted by pop culture in that way? I think it's really important to remember, as we've kind of talked about here, that pop culture acts as a mirror in some ways. It's a reflection. It's a representation, but it also influences as it kind of depicts these things. I think in the modern moment, um, movies, books, TV are still all very powerful, um, but social media is also a huge part of this conversation as well. Social media has really heightened the access to and cir circulation of some pop culture artifacts to include things like TikTok videos, memes. We as HRD scholars and practitioners have to work under an assumption that certain generational cohorts, so I'm thinking specifically of millennials and Gen Z who have to a certain extent been defined by internet and social media usage are seeing pop culture artifacts that may depict HR, organizational life, work in general, questions around the meaning of work broadly, either in a positive or a negative light or maybe a little bit of both. So I think about Instagram accounts that are workplace humor specific. So there are some Instagram accounts that depict work and work life, uh, nuances about the white collar workplace that I think really seem to take off during COVID, interestingly enough, during the pandemic. Things like the way that people interact on Zoom meetings and how different that was from office life and just the quirks and kind of jokes that come out of that. And I think there's something interesting about these humor accounts that are dedicated to jokes, but in a real sense, in a deeper sense, they're really nuanced kind of observations about work, the workplace and the experience of work. These accounts have thousands of followers, likes, comments, 
Um, so clearly it resonates with people. People relate to it. They think it's funny and they repost it. But I do think that for members of different generational cohorts who may be starting their first job out of school or kind of entering the workplace for the first time, it does influence their perception of the interactions that they have and just questions about how they're approaching navigating work and work life and organizations. So again, as pop culture is kind of like a mirror, it's also a driver of um, influence and interpretation and kind of creating meaning um, in in things that we all all share. And so I think one of the things too, in addition to the things that are out there, especially with respect, Darren, to the way you talked about um, people who've not been in the workplace before, um, I think it becomes really incumbent upon those of us who teach HR, HRD, to um, help break out of those stereotypes. So one of the things that um, I like to do is show movies that are, or refer students to movies that show that protest side. So in the States, I used to show Norma Ray. Here in the UK, I, I show Maiden Dagenham. Um, Metwan is another good movie that kind of brings out that trade union labor organizing side, that resistance side that happens within organizations. Um, because I think that the, the popular culture artifacts that we choose to share also help shape the way our students go out into the organization. So I think it's incumbent upon us as educators, um, whether that is in higher education or as educators within context of organized settings, that, that we are helping people shape aspirational ideas of what organizations could be. So I've got that resistance side, but I also, when I use the popular culture artifacts that don't relate explicitly to, because um, they, they present fantastic foils for students to say, you know, okay, I see this Instagram post and, and now how, do I, how am I going to take that? Or is that real? So it sets the stage for something that's happened that people can bounce off of. But also ones, especially those kinds of artifacts that are fiction, um, that that it isn't someone talking about what's happening, but it is a fiction. Then what? how do we aspire to change that? How do we aspire to find what's good about an organization? So if we use MASH, for example, where we see the resistance there and the dysfunction in the organization, or we use something like um, The Matrix or, or any other kind of movie that doesn't necessarily explicitly talk about an organization life, um, it, it can help us if we choose wisely, it can help us help students find positive things that they can change. And so that I think is one of those important places where we can't just throw the standard military metaphor, 12 o'clock high um, article or movie out there or book out there to get people to connect to stereotypical ideas about what organizations are, unless we are also asking them to critique that. Like when I show the company men, I'm asking them to critique it. Um, so it's a, the, the, for the HRD professional, the facilitation of the learning around those popular artifacts becomes incredibly important because you can't just leave it sitting. You have to engage with the way that the learners are engaging with it as well. I really just find it uh, the the way that popular culture is, is going to become something else through social media is fascinating in these sort of different ways of interacting with messages and satire and, and how our depictions of the workplace will shift because they are produced in a different way and they're produced by more people and they become viral in different ways. I think that's going to be really interesting to, I think it'll be a case for us as educators to try and keep up in some way. That might be quite a challenge as well. Um, I wanted to just come back to, again, the sport example. And the reason I wanted to is so the Hermoso and Rubiales example is an example, if we're thinking about influencing what, how it can influence our perception of HR, its absence again, I would say, how did that happen? That, that such a high powered person could do something like that at a moment of triumph to, to ruin that experience and for the, that to become the story. It wasn't the story of, Spain winning the World Cup, the Women's World Cup. It was the story of a sexual assault, which was awful. 
And similarly, when the England football team reached the final of the European football championships, the story became racism. The, the supporters were, that again, where was, where was the HR conversation going on there? Where was the cultural awareness, the, the awareness of, of how to behave? And that was stoked by the UK government, actually, at the time. So there's a lot, again, where there are opportunities where pop, popular culture presents us with opportunities of issues that are, emerge that we should learn from and find ways that we can address and avoid these and be proactive in the future. These are, these are rising up in a mass way that people are becoming aware of in a huge scale. This is an opportunity for HR to think, right, what can we do in our organization so this doesn't happen to us? I'd love to pick up on that, Mark. It's like to an extent, as we've had this conversation, it, it like what it would be possible to some for somebody to listen to the conversation and think, well, I'm at the receiving end here of pop culture, as in I'm gonna I'm in for a beating essentially. So I'm on the receiving end, and I have to think how to react to it. But then there's also been examples through the conversation that each of you have given about how social media could actually be leveraged by HRD. And so given that a fair number of the folks listening to the episode are probably in some form of HRD practice, whether as consultants or internal practitioners, when you think about that, Mark, picking up on what you were just talking about, how do you see those folks could could leverage pop culture so that it's a benefit to them? Thanks, Darren. I think this is where we should be really thinking about pop culture as a, a really beneficial instrument or tool that we can harness. Um, I think this is where a real opportunity lies. When I'm in the classroom and we have to introduce the idea of theory to students, you see like the heads drop and you know the idea of reading academic literature, this the, the groans. For me, this is about, and then we've talked about this for this episode, making organizational reality relatable, making it resonant so people can connect to it. And we've been talking about this the whole way through. Some great examples from academic literature. You've got Carl Rhodes has written about the Simpsons in the past and the idea of satire, ambivalence, but also there's a great paper by um, Martin Griffin and Mark Learmonth about Disney um, and the idea of meaningful work, gender, whistle-wire work. And I think these are great ways for our students to actually think again about what they've grown up with. You know, we've all grown up with Disney to some varying extent. It has a huge influence on the way that we see the world, the way we think about men and women, the way we think about uh, parents, actually, that's often a great theme within Disney, the death of a parent. So there's, there are lots of things that come up in, um, in Disney that it really hugely influenced the way we are. But I think it's pop culture. It gives us a window into that, that the world behind the employee. So it gives us that way of seeing beyond that surface. So like that severance is a great example of this, really, the, the two selves that develop distinct identities almost. And that, that threshold where we take on a different identity and popular culture can give us a, a way of seeing that and understanding that and making that more acceptable bringing that self that we've suppressed into the workplace so that we can have the permission to be more ourselves so i mean there's a, a colleague who sadly died uh, dr mary bruce martin who spoke about the concept of the cape this this cape that we put on um when we go into the workplace something that shifts our identity there are emerging diversity networks within workplaces um, i am part of the parents and carers network there is also lgbtq networks there are disability networks lots of identity-based networks that give people a space to bring more of themselves in and that is often a thread through popular culture of that aspect of your life that is not part of the, the paid work. I, in my own teaching, I've used um, Pixar's Inside Out, for example, as um, a way of thinking about how we manage people um, and, and Joy's journey, the character Joy, to appreciate the character sadness and what, what qualities that character brings. Not, not that kind of normative or you must present a, a happy, smiley version of yourself at all times. They're appreciating what what it is that you can 
tease out and, and the relationships you can build with each other. The how are you question, not just replying, I'm fine. You know, actually thinking about it more in more depth and having more permission to do that. And I'm I'm working on a, a module we're starting next term with uh, Dr. Helen Tracy um, about fiction and organizations and kind of the central premise that in fact all organizations are fictions. Um, I think we should think about that a lot more. They are fictions that we create. They are not the buildings, they are not the rules. We are the organizations, we can change them. There are aspects of organizations that shouldn't be the way they are and people can leverage what they have as a collective and they can change that. Another aspect that we don't think about enough is humor. And that's again, my colleague Ellen Tracy, she does research around that. That is hugely neglected and it's a huge part of organization life. It makes work bearable a lot of the time. And I think that's something and that sense of community in, in the academic research around human resource development. Why is humor not brought to the fore more? And just thinking generally about how we communicate research in this area. I was reading a, a book chapter by Robin Redman Wright talking about Doctor Who and popular culture. And she was, and this is really pr present in terms of political side of things as well, but if we're thinking about communicating HRD research, the right-wing media is using storytelling and fiction to bring its audience to the right. The left-wing media is using facts and numbers more, more often than not to try and bring its audience to them. One is being successful and bringing audiences with them and the other one is failing. What can we learn from that? What can we do to tell the story of research in a way that reaches an audience, not just five people who are an expert in this field, a large audience so it can have an impact. So we can affect the cultures of organizations through the use of popular culture, through the lessons we can learn. Why is it popular? It's not because it quotes loads of facts at us. It resonates with us in a completely different way. And that's something that I think we should really take on board. If we can take anything, that, that should be the direction for HRD. I, I'm reminded how much popular culture work I really actually do during the course of, of, of this podcast. And I'm thinking about a whole lot of the research that I've done, um, the research on storytelling, the literature review. Um, but one of the things I want to talk about we were talking about mirroring and leveraging. And uh, my colleague, uh, Claire Cook, Thomas Pollitt, and I recently published an article in the Psychology of Aesthetics, Creativity, and the Arts. And that particular study looked at actors and how the roles they were given and asked to play differed from the kinds of roles that they wanted to play. And we found that women were starting to be offered roles that were more progressive and that that challenge that were more feminist in nature that were were more powerful whereas men were not getting those kinds of roles they were getting the stereotypical alpha male kind of role and they didn't want those and so that is reinforcing a masculinized patriarchal kind of way of looking at how men are supposed to behave so we're we're addressing it. And this goes back to that whole fix the women thing. We're paying attention to the idea of fixing roles for women, but we're not paying attention to the idea of we also need to fix the roles for men. Otherwise, what's happening out in the world is never going to shift as well. It's going to be that much harder to shift. It goes back to that idea of when we leverage, we need to be thinking about what is that relationship? How does that mirror work and how do we change that mirror so that it picks up on the cultural changes that are actually happening out in the world? So, Jamie, so um, like a penultimate question for the episode, then you, you talked about your own research in this space. And I'm conscious that some of the people listening are researchers or they are Ph.D. students who are thinking about what their dissertation topic should be. So when you think about the conversation we've had here and your own experiences of researching in this space, what advice would you have for somebody who's considering research on HRD and pop culture? Yeah, as I mentioned, as we're sitting here, I'm thinking about, oh, wow, I use popular culture a lot. 
Um, I have a human relations article that looked at YouTube videos and the Fringe Fest, Edinburgh Fringe Fest catalogs, looking at solo women um, comedians and the way that they manage their impressions in, in, in different contexts. So how they feel they have to manage their identities in Fringe, um, which has a different climate, culture, and vibe to a more masculinized live comedy club show, how they manage that differently and how they pull out their, their kind of feminist orientations, how that differs. Um, and I hadn't even thought of that when we began. I've used Twitter as a, as a space for pulling out scraping posts and looking at the way people engage and how they think about using um, social movements to, uh, to um, uh, interact. I've published on social movements and, and Occupy London. I've published on swing dance. Um, I've used art as a mechanism to stimulate interviews. I've looked at actors. So I've, I've done a lot of different kinds of popular culture research. I think in terms of looking at the relationship between HRD and pop culture and, and how we would research that, the one way we can approach it is by looking at how do we use popular culture as a tool, a methodological tool um, to facilitate research. Um, the other piece of it is how do we in turn use it as a site? You know, you were talking about locations of, of the popular culture. So how do we use popular culture as sites that we can enter into and and make inferences about what's happening in the world. Um, the other way that we might be able to use it is is not just using it as a methodological tool, not using it as as a site, um, but using it as kind of like an an overlay where we're asking people to make sense of. So it's a learning tool, and how do we how do we leverage that as a learning tool? So it's not just understanding what's happening in organizations, it's how do we engage in learning? Because ultimately HRD is about learning and development that hopefully leads to better performance for organizations. But how do we leverage it then as a learning tool, not just as a site for study, not just as a methodological tool? And we started it with we started this whole conversation talking about how popular culture is idiosyncratic. You know, we all have different connection points that we have. And what we're thinking of at the time is going to influence the way we each look at a particular cultural artifact in different ways. Um, so Mark and I are working on a project right now where we're taking a, a novel, and it's fascinating that each of us had a different lens of what we pulled out of this same novel, but we pulled out something different because of where we are in our own identities. And, and so in that way, I can't have an answer in terms of what should we study next or what should we be looking at? Because it all depends on what you're pulling from popular culture and what you think your place can give back to popular culture. This has been a really interesting and fun conversation. And so I, I'd love, given that this is the last episode of the season, to end on a fun note. And this seems the right group to do that with. And so you, you've referenced the Barbie movie as we've gone through. And um, and so I was I was wondering from a pop culture perspective, given the success of Barbie, if the if the next highly successful movie was to be an HRD one as opposed to a a Barbie one. Um, if if you were writing that HRD movie for today, what what would that story be? What what would you want that HRD film to be? And and maybe like who would you who would you want to star in it? Does anyone have any thoughts on that? I think the setting would have to be the conference for sure. Um, one of one of I guess if we're making a, a you know maybe there's there's multiple parts to this movie or multiple movies in, the, in a series but just it's a it's a great time where everybody's obviously all together so I think that would be um uh, a great recipe for some HRD entertainment for a great movie yeah I think that that setting would be very interesting if we did that I could, could I suggest maybe Judy Dench to play Karen Watkins I, I think that could be a, a an interesting possibility but uh, any, anybody want a different approach to the uh, different setting to the conference? Mark, Mark, what do you think? 
I'm, I'm going blockbuster with this film. I think it, we need to grasp the popular. And so I'm, I've, gone, I've gone with something a bit more sci-fi as well. I think it has to be a bit extraordinary. We need to shift this narrative of HR entirely. So I'm going, I'm going time travel. I'm thinking like a spoof Terminator kind of film where the HR, HR protagonists, are, I, I like Emily Blunt as a protagonist who does all sorts of different um, roles. So I think she would be good. She's going to do something extraordinary in her future. Perhaps, so I, I like the idea of her having a now changing the narrative for trans rights at works or something fantastic. And in, she's contacted by a future HRD manager from say a hundred years in the future. So I'm going to go with Tom Hanks. And then, and then we're going to have, she's contacted by two agents of the patriarchy and they're going to return to try and stop her from achieving this. So it's my movie, it's my fantasy. I'm going to have Sir Ian McKellen and Viola Davis. And the, the plot is going to be around this, this day of profound change in the life history of organising and how HRD suddenly became uh, an actor in the world of work. And the, this encounter with a, a trans person, so perhaps Elliot Page would be a good option for that as the final character. But I think it, we can lean into some of these important issues that arise from popular culture. And that's what my, my blockbuster would be for HR. Gosh, I want to see that movie. So, so J J Jamie, do you have a bigger blockbuster than, than, than Mark just sold us? Well, I, I think we need to switch and end on Mark's because that was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> but as with all popular culture, I'm influenced by the things that are are driving me right now as an employee myself with within an organization and so the two competing pieces are how are we dealing with with ai and how are we addressing the neoliberalization um, uh, of of higher education and organizations in general i'm going to switch over to neoliberalization i've got some ai stuff you know the whole brent spiner um how do we deal with ai in in, in the workplace how do we fight over teaching it um, but with the neoliberalization, I'm thinking about the whole idea of, of a take on Jerry Harvey's frog farms, frog is in P-H-R-O-G in his Abilene Paradox book, and and kind of create a, a yet another zombie apocalypse kind of movie of how we've all been turned into zombies in the workplace where we're not questioning what's happening. We're just blindly going forward with what we're being told that we have to do, and we're not challenging the underlying reasons behind it. We're not questioning and in whose interest does this serve but i don't know okay taylor darren mark who are some actors that we could put in here i can't think of any um who might we put in for the zombie apocalypse of the of the the manager who's who's making all of the decisions uh, on high and telling us what we're supposed to believe and do and then the different zombie people who are just saying yes we do or the hr person um who is is um, complicit with management or the the HRD person who's trying to change the zombies and and inoculate them against the neoliberalization apocalypse. I don't know. We should get Pedro Pascal to be the uh, HRD person who's trying to change just given how people loved him in The Last of Us, the another kind of post-apocalyptic movie. He'd be like, we should like let him kind of keep riding this character out for a while. So I think he'd be great for that, that HRD kind of uh, neoliberal thought emancipator, if you will. <laughs> like... What what an amazing way of ending, not just the episode, but the whole season. Uh, I want to say, sadly, we've run out of time for today, but I wanted to say a big thank you to all three of you for such an interesting fun discussion and for giving us all just so much to think about and hopefully to then act upon so thank you all so much indeed thank you thank you this was really fun thank you so much for joining me for the episode it was wonderful spending time with jamie callahan Mark Gatto, and Taylor Cavallo. If you enjoyed the episode, check out all of our others. Over our first four seasons, we've released 44 episodes containing conversations with over 100 leading scholars from around the world. To learn more about the series, check out hrdmasterclass.com. 
And to learn about the Academy of Human Resource Development, check out ahrd.org. Sadly, this was our final episode in Season 4. I hope you've enjoyed our conversations. It certainly means a lot that you've joined us for this wonderful season of exploring the relationship between HRD and trends in society and organisations. I can't wait until we're back together for a new season in 2024. Until then, stay safe. This is Darren Short, signing off from the Human Resource Development Masterclass. Human Resource Development Masterclass podcast is brought to you by the Academy of Human Resource Development and is a production of allbypodcast.com.